You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as a lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. And it's indeed a great honor and privilege to stand before you to share with you from God's Word. Today, we'll continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew by looking at Matthew 27, 16 through uh, 62 through chapter 28 through 15. Um, last week, Pastor Nick asked a very important question. And the question was this, what will God do about death? This week, we'll consider a similar question. The question is this, what do you believe about Jesus' resurrection? You know, we live in a day when religion is a matter of preference and even opinion. Many people believe that all religions are fundamentally the same. The differences are only superficial because they don't feel like there's a big difference between them. In most areas of life, we know instinctively to operate on the basis of truth rather than on feelings and or preferences. For instance, have you ever heard the statement before? What is true for you may not be what is true for me. But no one really believes that, right? Imagine with me if you went to withdraw money at your local bank and the teller said, I don't feel like you have money in your account. Honestly, no matter how the teller might have felt in that moment, you just need your money. Amen. (laughs) Whether it is true for, um, for you or if it's true or not for the teller, either she has your, he or she has your money or either they don't. The last thing we want to do is to give out money based on how we feel. Notice with me that belief is always irresponsible and empty if it's not based in truth. So let me ask you, what do you believe about Jesus' resurrection? Matthew 28 verses 1 through 15 provides a historical overview over over one of the most important events in all of human history. And our response should be based on truth, not upon feelings. For our our eternity hangs on whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened or not. And today, I want to review this passage of Scripture in light of this question. And I also want to consider some theories that might help us explain the historical significance of it. Would you pray with me? Father God, we do love you and we thank you. We praise you for this Resurrection Sunday. Pray as always that you would hide me behind your cross. Let your people hear from you and not me. Pray that you, as always, you would take my little, make much of it, and glorify yourself. Let some mind be transformed. Let some soul be saved for the advancement of your kingdom and the furthering of your purposes in South Louisville and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's passage can simply be broken into three parts. Denial, doubt, and deception. We see denial in verses 62 through 66. Look with me there, if you don't mind. 
Listen to the words from Paul, excuse me, from, the, from, from Matthew. He says, the next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the scribes gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate told him, you have a a guard of soldiers. Go and make it secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb. By setting a seal on the stone and placing the guard. In these verses, we see the evidence of denial right before our eyes. You see, the problem with this is this, is that the evidence was given, the verdict was provided, yet the Pharisees still denied the claims that, had, that they had already witnessed. Do you remember the evidence that God provided? In in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 and 54, he says, But Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquake, the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. When the centurion, those who were watching over Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, "This, this man was truly the son of God. Notice with me that the Pharisees have accomplished their goal. They crucified Jesus and they have literally watched him take his last breath. Yet, they're still concerned. They're concerned about his resurrection. It's a good reminder for us as a church this morning that sin always causes us to deny God's truth. Sin will take you farther than you're willing to go. Sin will keep you longer than you're willing to stay. Sin will convince you of things that simply are not true. Love how Psalm 10, 40 verses 4 and 6 puts it. It says, in all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there is no accountability since there is no God. He says to himself, I will never be removed from generation to generation without calamity. Psalm 14.1 puts it a different way. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do, eat, they do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. Love what N.T. Wright says in his book, Simply Christian. He says this. He says, God, as the wise creator, creator, uses authorities even when they do not acknowledge him and even when they make uh, many mistakes to bring at least a measure of order into this world. Paul puts it an even better way in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29. Listen to the words of Paul. He says this about our God. He says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is foolish in the world to to shame the wise, and he's choosing what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast 
in his presence. As we've been going through the gospel of Matthew for these last two years, there are many themes that we've brought up in our teaching. And this is a good reminder of one of the themes that we've talked about most recently about the sovereignty of God. That God is in control, always in control. That he's in control even when you think that you're in control. He's in control even when your life is out of control. And God is in control even when you're trying to maintain control. God is always in control because God is always in charge. Notice with me that there's a stark difference between doubt and denial. To doubt is, is a feeling of uncertainty or maybe even a lack of confidence that you have within yourself. It's a perception. Oh, but to deny. To deny is a whole nother thing. To deny is the state that one refuses to admit the truth or existence of something. It is a refusal to accept something desired or required. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, we'll be able to see this distinction between doubt and denial. Look with me in Matthew 28, looking at verses 1 through 10. Note, as we read, note the mention of the words fear or being afraid as we read along together. It says, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the woman, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you so. So departing quickly from the tomb with great, with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Notice with me, who witnessed Jesus' resurrection and who tried to deny it? Let's look at verses one through seven and see who witnessed Jesus' resurrection. The person, the people who met Jesus in his resurrection were two women. And these two women were classified as those, could be classified as those who were doubting what they saw and what they were experiencing. But if you are a person who struggles with doubt, I have good news for you today. Because God always meets us in our doubts, amen? The story of the resurrection begins with two women named Mary. And in the Jewish culture, women's testimonies weren't highly regarded. Why do you ask? Well, because women were not trusted. Women were taken advantage of and they were overlooked and they were underappreciated. I think we can get an amen from the women in the, in the crowd. Amen. Speaks to another thing that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. 
Not just the sovereignty of God, not that he's always in control because he always is. But this speaks to another theme that we taught throughout this series about the insiders and outsiders. That, 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 that those who should not get the gospel, those who should not understand the, the complexities and the beauty of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, those people always get it. But the people who should get it, the studied, the elites, the powerful and the privileged, they don't get it. See, Jesus' life began with the faithful woman, Mary, who birthed him even as a virgin. And now we see that his resurrected life begins with the presence of two faithful women named Mary. It's a good reminder for us that the kingdom of God first came to those who were overlooked, to those who were abused, to those who were marginalized, because the kingdom of God belongs to such people, to those who are on the absolute margins of life, those who are overlooked, those who are forsaken, those who are downtrodden, kingdom of God is for you. It's a good reminder for also that in God's kingdom, there's no small people, amen? The, 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 the concept of having small people in God's kingdom is an oxymoron. <clears throat> in other words, there are no big eyes and small U's in God's kingdom, as my grandfather used to say. God has no favorites. And he'll accept anyone. But the question remains, if God has no favorites and he'll accept, he'll accept anyone, why isn't everyone accepted? We see this in verses 11 through 15 through this tag that I call, this, this title that I call deception. Look with me in verses 11 through 15. As they, as they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this. His disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. So in verses one through seven, we witness who actually witnessed the resurrection. Now we see those who tried to deny it. Notice with me that the guards could not deny, they could not deny that the tomb holding the crucified Jesus was now vacant. The, dark, the guards didn't deny that Jesus' body was missing from the tomb. Their main concern was coming up with an ulterior explanation. And here's a plan that they conspired. Here's a plan that they, they came up with. It, it sounds very familiar to verse 64. The plan they conspired was a plan they used to stir up fear in Pilate's heart from the very beginning. You remember what they said in, in verse 64? They said, Jesus, this, this deceiver has said that he will rise from the dead. And they went on to say, let us put a seal and guards before the tomb. Otherwise, his disciples may come, 
steal him and tell the people he is risen from the dead and the first deception will be worse than the first. It's amazing that these men use fear to incite Pilate to put Roman soldiers before a dead man's tomb. (laughs) And then when God resurrects him from the dead, they go back to that very same plan that they had from the beginning. So the question remains for us to hear this morning, what do you believe about the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Now, Now listen to me very carefully. We're not talking about resuscitation. Resuscitation is reviving one's life from being dead. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about incarnation. That is reinventing one's life into another life form. But we're talking about resurrection. Raising one's life from the dead. You are dead and now you're alive. It's not that you're halfway dead and you come back alive. You're dead we said our goodbyes, we put you in the, in the hole, but yet God, by his power and by his glory and for his goodness, raised up his son for all to see. This is a very important question for us to consider this day. The ultimate question for the Christian faith and for our lives is this. What do you believe about Jesus' resurrection? Church family, can I I just talk to you for a minute? I really believe that if we took this question seriously, our lives would look totally different. If we really believed that God raised his son up from the dead, That is all the motivation we need to to, to live and commit ourselves to community. (laughs) If we really believe that God raised his son up from the dead, I don't care what's happening in your life. God can always make it right. If we really believe that God raised his son from the dead, husbands, we will love our wives as Christ loved the church and wives, we would love and submit ourselves to our husbands. If we really believe that God raised his son from the dead, we can walk in unity and forgiveness and reconciliation as the community that God has called us to be. I'll be the first one to admit <laughs> If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then listen, church, we're wasting our time. Listen, let's let's, let's fold up our Bibles. Let's get in our cars and go to Crackle Barrel and have a good brunch after church. We can just go ahead and call it a day. But, But if Jesus raised from the dead, if he raised from the dead and if he ascended on high, and if he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now making intercession for us, then every tear that we shed on this earth matters before our holy holy king. Every tribulation we go through has a purpose in the hand of the sovereign king. And every pain that we experience in this world has been and will continue to be redeemed 
by the precious blood of the Lamb. Do you believe? What do you believe about the resurrection? I'm not asking you what I believe. I'm asking you what do you believe? What do you believe about the resurrection? See, many of you know my story. I came, spent the last seven years at a wonderful institution called Princeton University. It was a great experience, but it also was a hard experience because a lot of people there, majority of the people there did not believe in God. <laughs> and they would come up with theories and notions and different ways that they would disprove or try to disprove the existence of God. They would explain away his being the son of God. They would explain away him being his virgin birth. They would explain away his miracles with theories and, and all type of other evidence that they thought that they were conjuring up. But do you know the one thing that they could never explain away? The one thing they could never explain away was you. In all the denial of Jesus being the Son of God, in all the denial of the virgin birth, in all of the denial of the miracles that Jesus did, the one question they can never answer was this. If Christianity isn't true, how do you explain the rapid growth of the global church? That's the one question they can't explain. You, why do you gather on a Sunday? <laughs> why do you get on your knees and pray? Why do you eat communion? Why are you committed to the multi-ethnic beauty of God's global and universal church? Why send your families overseas to preach a gospel that's not true? Why face death for the name and cause of Christ? See, church family, while there's a burden of proof on those who believe in Jesus' resurrection, there's also an even greater burden of proof on unbelievers who disprove the resurrection. Love what Tim Keller says in his book, Reason for God. He says, when I was studying philosophy and religion in college, I was taught that the resurrection of Jesus was a major historical problem. No matter how you looked at it, most modern historians made the philosophical assumption that miracles simply could not happen. And that made the claim of the resurrection highly problematic. However, if you disprove, disbelieve the resurrection, you then had the difficulty explaining how the Christian church got started at all. So today what I want to do with you as I close, I want to look at some explanations provided to try to disprove Jesus' resurrection. And I want to try to provide some answers to each and every one, if you give me some time. There's four plausible exp explanations to disprove the resurrection. The first one is, excuse me, four implausible explanations to disprove the resurrection. The first one is this, Jesus didn't die on the cross. <laughs> These two theories come from a popular one of the most popular religions in our world the, from the Quran, from Islam. According to the Quran, Jesus didn't go to the cross, but rather 
the individual who died on the cross only looked like Jesus. They say that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that Jesus went to the cross, but instead of dying, he fainted and became unconscious. And Jesus later regained consciousness and escaped from the tomb. Notice with me that the point of divergence between the two most dominant world religions in all of the world, Christianity and Islam, converge at the point of truth, not preference, not ideology, nor even one's opinion. The divergence of Christianity and Islam starts at the empty tomb. Now let's assume... And look at this, <laughs> and, 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 and let, let's look at this for what it is. What they're saying is this, is that Jesus went through six trials with no sleep. They're saying he endured a brutal, a, a brutal scourging. He had thorns thrust into his head. He had nails thrust into his hands and feet. He had a spear thrust into his side. He spent multiple hours on the cross suffering the pain of crucifixion. And upon his seemingly death, he was wrapped in grave clothes, put in a burial tomb, which was then heavily guarded by Roman soldiers. So if you're going to believe this theory that Jesus didn't really, believe, didn't really die on the cross, you, you, what, what they're asking you to believe is this. That somehow Jesus regained consciousness after suffering horribly on the cross. That he stealthily nudged a, a huge, gigantic stone out of the way all by himself with his wounded body. That he quietly tiptoed around the tomb that was guarded, heavily guarded by Roman soldiers. And then made a cool way exit that no one's found him to this day. Love what Tertullian, the North African theologian, says about this. He says, you will, al you will also allow that it was in the flesh that Christ was raised from the dead. For the very same body that fell in death and which lay in the sepulcher did rise again. You see, history affirms the life and death of Jesus on the cross. There's no credible historian sociologists, or any other person who can deny the fact that Jesus was, he's, he's a real person and his crucifixion was real. So this is implausible to believe. But let me ask you, <laughs> what do you believe about the resurrection? There's another theory, not just that Jesus didn't die on the cross. There's another theory that says that Jesus' tomb was not empty. This is called the wrong tomb theory. And essentially it says this, that due to the women's grief and their shock over Jesus' death, the women actually went to the wrong tomb. And on Easter morning, they mistakenly thought that Jesus had resurrected. Presumably, everyone else started going to the wrong tomb too. So we don't have a problem of resurrection. We have a problem of relocation. <laughs> not having the right coordinates on our GPS. What does this entail? What does this assume? It assumes a couple of things. There are too many evidences to accept this theory. 
Number one, the stone was placed before the tomb and a seal was placed on the, on the tomb, on, on the stone. Think about this with me. How many tombs have a big, gigantic stone rolled in front of them? <laughs> How many tombs would have a seal to make sure that it's, it's shut tightly? How many tombs would have hundreds or, excuse me, uh, tens and, and, and 20 uh, legions of Roman soldiers guarding a dead man's body. More than that, Jesus left evidence for us in his resurrection. According to John 20, verse 7, John puts it this way about the resurrection. He says, the wrappings that he had on his head was not lined with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate piece all by itself. Now, this is very important. I know it's a very minute thing, but listen to me closely. This is very important that Jesus would take the, the napkin that was on his face and put it separate from the linen cloth. The reason is this, is that in Jewish culture, a servant knew when his or her master was done with the meal based upon how they took their napkin and they placed it. When you're done with your meal, if you take the napkin and you just ball it up, if it's unfolded, that means that you're finished, that you, you, you're, you're done eating. But if you take the napkin and you fold it up and you put it in a particular place, it lets the server know that I'm coming back. <laughs> so Jesus, when he resurrects, he doesn't get up in a hurry. He takes his time. He takes off his linen cloths and he takes that napkin and he folds it just right and he puts it in a particular place to let those know who saw it that I'm coming back. And I'm coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Love what David Platt says this in his commentary. He says, in reality, no one would have believed in Jesus' resurrection if the tomb was not actually empty. Moreover, someone could have identified the correct tomb and the entire Christian movement would have been shut down from the start. We stand on pretty firm historical ground that the tomb was empty. Though that in and of itself doesn't prove, um, doesn't prove the resurrection of Jesus. So pretending that the tomb was already empty makes no sense. We can discredit that. The third option is this is that what they said from the very beginning. The disciples stole the body of Jesus. Notice with me that this is, this is the exact conspiracy that the Jewish authorities propagated from the very beginning. The very lie that they conceived is now one of the options they want you to believe. That the disciples came in the middle of the night and stole Jesus' body and lied about his resurrection. Love what Leon Morris says about this in his commentary. He says, in the Greco-Roman thought, the goal in life was not to be liberated from the body. So the last thing you would want was to come back into the body. For many Jews, the idea of individual resurrection back into the world of sickness, decay, and death was inconceivable. The kind of resurrection that Jesus experienced was not even an option. So why would the disciples steal Jesus' body and then tell people that his body had been resurrected? So we talked through 
for three of the implausible theories. One, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Two, Jesus' tomb was not empty. Three, the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Now let's look at the last one. The disciples were delusional when they came to see Jesus. This simply says this, that in the disciples' pain and grief over Jesus' death, the disciples still believed that Jesus was somehow guarding, guarding them and leading them. They had visions in their minds of Jesus speaking to them, but these were simply hallucinations and not real visions. I tell you, my friends, there are a lot of people who have their theories about why Jesus didn't resurrect or how he could not resurrect it. But this is my question for us today. What do you believe about the resurrection? The answer to that question can change your life throughout all eternity. Let me take a dose of my own medicine. <laughs> Let me tell you what I believe. <laughs> I believe that he's risen. I believe that he reigns. And I believe that he rules. And I encourage you that if you believe the same, live your life every day in light of this reality. That Jesus is risen, that Jesus reigns, and that Jesus rules. Church family, I love Easter time because it is a time of great joy and hope. But listen, every Sunday should be Easter. Every Sunday we live in light of our resurrected King. We live in light of him being one that death could not hold him. We live in light of the one whom whom the, the scars that he put on his body was for the forgiveness of our sins. We live in light of the one who is coming again on clouds of glory for his elect. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, no, I implore you, live in light of the resurrection. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and we praise you for you're a good God and King. We ask that the joy that we experience at this moment would not be joy that would soon fade away. Help us to live in light every day that you are our resurrected King, making intercession for us, even right now at the right hand of the Father. And Father, if you hold all power and authority, if you hold the cosmos by the power of your word, if in you all things have their purpose and meaning, God, teach us what it means to willfully and joyfully bow the knee to King Jesus. Pray, Lord, that you would grow us in this way, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. This time, we invite you to partake of communion with us. Communion is not just simply a meal. It's, a, it's the bread and wine that, that, you brought, that you're about to partake of speaks to the reality of Jesus being our perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. It speaks to his life, his death, his burial, and yes, even his glorious resurrection on the third day. And by partaking of this meal, it proclaims more than simply taking a meal. It proclaims... Christ's death until he returns, according to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. We're reminded that he alone has fully and eternally atoned for our sins. 
And he alone has given himself as a sacrifice and a peace offering before God. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Let us eat of that bread together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Same way he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us take and drink of that cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus went on to say that I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.